0: they're just kind of securing my account by making sure that signing up and people. Okay. So, they The, the porn star.
1: one party's guy, I mean, this is what happens in Russia, right? This is what happens in countries that we, we mock for how you know, absurd their system is, you know, this is uh, what you see in like one of the stands where they have elections, but it's 97% goes to the guy who happens to control the secret police. Um, They bring a a federal insurrection charge of some kind against Donald Trump. um, And they finally, they finally see through the promise that they've made to the Democrat base starting all the way back in 2016 with Russia collusion. They have been conditioning, again, they have been conditioning their base and their people in this country to be open to the idea of a president who is a traitor, and to believe that we have a president who is a traitor. Now, the people that paid attention to Russia, the people who paid attention to the whole collusion narrative, they understand it's propaganda, it was lies, it was a deep state operation, okay, fine. They don't care about those people because they don't think they have to. Um, They think they'll have enough to just finally silence the opposition. And and what do they really ultimately want? They want a one-party state. What do they have in California? And look, I love California. I'm not saying California is the Soviet Union, but what do they have? They have a one-party state. Mm -hmm. What do they think they can achieve in this country? I think they believe they can achieve. Nominally, it's a democracy, sure, or a republic. Um, But I think they they believe they can achieve a de facto one party state and the way to do it is to just completely destroy um, the existing Republican Party by indicting and maybe even imprisoning Donald Trump. And they'll feel good about themselves as they do it because they've convinced themselves that Donald Trump is a traitor to his country, even though the Russia thing's a lie. They don't believe it's a lie.
2: I'm done with traditional foundation because of this. As a young makeup artist, I tried every foundation,
1: powdery form. It's a lie. Do you think
2: they're going to indict Biden?
0: Plato's Secrets of years ago.
3: knowledge. I'm here with my very good friend, Matthew LaCroix. He's also the co-author of the book that we wrote called The Epic of Humanity. And we're here to talk about, of course, Atlantis today. We're going to read from the Timius and Critias. So we're going to give you guys some, some knowledge about Atlantis. We'll touch on some sunken cities and some other incredible information that a lot of people just don't know about. All right. So it's going to be a great talk today. We're looking forward to sharing Uh, A lot of information and knowledge with you. I see a lot of people hopping in the chat already, and I'm looking forward to sharing and spending a lot of time with you guys today. And uh, Matthew, one thing that I've learned from you over the years is how a person can grow not only through their research and their knowledge, but also through their ability to convey messages For everyone who doesn't really know who you are, I know a lot of people do, but just talk a little bit about yourself, where you came from, and how
2: you got to the point where you are right now. Well, thank you, Billy. I appreciate it. I had very humble beginnings, like many of you. Um, Billy actually kind of came to Maine and pulled me out and was like, hey, I want to give you a chance, right? You can get on a bigger stage. I believe in a lot of what you're saying. And so four years ago, uh, Billy and I met, and a lot of things have happened since then. But for those who don't know who I am, uh, my name is Matthew Lacroix. I'm an ancient history, lost civilization, esoteric expert who specifically studies and uh, the expertise is ancient Mesopotamian cuneiform tablets, as well as just general ancient civilizations around the world. And so, Billy and I, um, God, we must have we must have met like what seven years ago or eight years ago or something. Yeah, somewhere in that range. Day. Yeah, way back in the day. And
0: back in the day, it's
2: just been quite a journey to see the facets of the alignments of different people that are studying these things in conjunction, these parallel paths, and having them all come in alliance and say, we want to actually change this narrative finally, taking the evidence from around the world, these ancient texts, these stories that specifically state about these catastrophes in these locations, and let's bring back this lost timeline of ancient civilizations and lost civilizations and understand what Atlantis was, and how it ties into who we
1: are. Look at you, investing like you run the joint. You're saying things like, I want that VDS on my desk, Mike, and how it ties into who we are. Yeah, absolutely. And this is what I'm talking about today. We're gonna to talk about Atlantis. And uh, you, know, you, you had come up with a very good suggestion about reading from the, the, the Timaeus and the Critias, which a lot of people have heard about.
3: They've heard about the the story that. of Plato speaking of Atlantis, but I don't think a lot of people have ever actually taken the time to dig into it and read it for themselves. Uh, and I understand a lot of people are busy. You got wife, husband. You got kids. You got a job to go to. You have all these things going on, and so sometimes the the distractions of the day take you away from things that you might be passionate about. So Matthew and I are going to spend some time helping you fulfill your uh, your destiny of getting some of this knowledge from this ancient information. All right. So how do you want to start it off, Matt? Well, I think we should lay down the foundation first should give people the story. Like I think there's a lot of...
2: And so where does this whole story start, at, right? There's a lot of mystery and kind of bogginess in itself. Is this like Edgar Casey? or his well, No, it actually begins with a man named Solon, who, who was an Athenian statesman, a um, very brilliant man, actually, who decided, and we don't really even know a lot of the story on why he decided <laughs> to go to Egypt, actually. It's it, that's a bit of a mystery. But we know that he was exploring to go So he traveled in 600 BC all the way to Egypt. He was the first Westerner, like the first scholar from a Western region that like could write down extensive um, stories and have and basically understand this culture. And he comes and he meets with these temple priests in, in the Nile in the Nile Delta of Egypt, and it's a place called the Temple of Sais S A I S. And there he's greeted by the great uh, the head great uh you could call it the elder priest that had all this knowledge and his, his name was Sanchez Sanchez and Sanchez was his job was with these other priests at the temple of Sace was to be record keepers that's it the whole, po- whole point of that temple was not for worship it was actually for records they were keeping records in a way that's similar to Al- the library of Alexandria but different because library of Alexandria was more like scholarly things greatest achievements and like through the scholarly works but temple of sages wasn't that it was different. It was more of something like the Dogon if you if you know anything about the Dogon elders with their, their protection of ancient stories, it's the same concept there whereas they were these, these priests, these elder priests were protecting the story of us, like the entire story of our history that had been handed down by great sages and masters around history meaning place that it really existed in its totality and written and, and shown in these beautiful mur- murals in this ancient temple was the Temple of Sais. That was literally the center of all of this. And so Solon just happened to go there. I think he probably knew that was an important temple and so he went there. Sanchez greets him. He meets him. He says, Solon, I have so much to tell you. And he says, basically, we have lifetimes of human history to explain to you. And he goes on to, to describe to him from the classic Greeks, they're only just one iteration of a much more ancient story that goes back for them as well as Atlantis and Egypt. It's all connected because mm-hmm. Greece, you find out that Timaeus and Critias had a proto-civilization before called the Proto-Athenians or Athenians in that case that predated the Greeks by thousands of years, which is why they came and merged and they were so sophisticated in their understandings of civilization that had emerged that was part of Egypt in some ways who, I mean, I believe through you know, the sons of Shem or something like that or the Enoch connection went, went off through um, Egypt and cre- eventually created a civilization out somewhere right off of in the Atlantic. And that's what this this Sanchez priest tells Solon is he describes this entire story about, about an ancient civilization that existed basically this almost like superior civilization of our history that we have very little records or understanding of. But Solon had a journal. So he was sitting there, and he wrote everything down that Sanchez told him, everything, including details of the rings of, of the central city and what Atlantis was like, what their governing was like, what their influences were like, everything. It was, like, so detailed in that. And so Solon comes back first person that he tells, or at least the primary person he tells, is his name is Socrates. And Socrates then tells Diodorus Plato. That's how it goes. It's, it's, it's information that comes from sources that gets handed down to these great Greek minds and these philosophers our history. And Plato in the Timaeus and Critias then writes about ancient Atlantis versus the Athenians as civilizations. And he says, this is not a, a fictional story. This is a real story that's based on uh, real events, but it's being used as an allegory to describe how civilizations can emerge in the direction they can take. But that allegorical aspect made people think that it's not true, but I want to give a context for that. For those who don't know, Socrates was murdered by their own government after. He was poisoned okay? because he started speaking out about different aspects of, of, of government and different things that weren't. Weren't morally just. And they killed him. They they murdered Mm -hmm. Socrates. And it was one of the most horrific acts in, um, in that time period because Plato describes how it was like losing a father and he was devastated. It like destroyed him. But it made him very careful. And he knew that if he spoke out about Atlantis in a certain way, he would be killed too. So, smart enough as it is, he wrote the whole thing as an Exactly.
3: Facts, man. Facts. What a great, great description to get us off to a phenomenal start on Atlantis. And a lot of people, I'm glad you really broke it down because a lot of people have heard small fragments of what Atlantis or Plato's version of what Atlantis may have been or what the history of it might have been. And I mean really tiny, I'm talking about sentences over the years. Even I hadn't heard a lot about it until about 10 years ago, just as I dug in to begin to do more research, as you have, and so I began to realize this was a much bigger story, and the story is really a mind-boggling story, because we're talking about a super-advanced civilization that existed in the ancient past, and we're talking about the fact that the information about this, the knowledge of this location, had been passed on, and, uh, you know it's. it's something, in my personal opinion, there's enough circumstantial evidence to prove that it was real and it really did exist. So, yeah, without further ado, let's talk a little bit about Atlantis.
2: Um, Page 138, if anybody wants to follow along with us, like we're, you know, we're doing one of those readings. Um, But page 138 contains the first quote. It's the first piece of uh, an understanding. It's an understanding of what Atlantis is and what happened in our ancient past. But more of, of... lining with where does it fall in our timeline how do we understand how our epic has played out and you get clues here now this is coming directly from Sanchez so imagine right if we're doing the storytelling session we're sitting around a fire this is what you would see Sanchez would be you know sitting down with so- with um, I'm sorry with Solon and they were they were discussing and describing the ancient past and this is what this is what Sanchez tells Solon he says, Of mankind, arising out of many causes, the greatest have been brought about by fire and water.
3: You remember a single deluge only, but there were many previous ones. For so all that, God, that we, yeah. oh, go go ahead. Ahead. No what are no. you going to say? Yeah, go I say, for all that we have lying within the mouth of which we speak, is evidently a haven having narrow entrance. Yonder is a real ocean, and the land surrounding it, my most rightly, is my most rightly be called, in the fullest
2: and truest sense, a continent. That's interesting. Now, on this island of Atlantis, there existed a a confederation of of kings of great and marvelous power, which held sway over all the island and many of the other islands and parts of the continent. Let's stop there for a minute before we read any more passages. Let's break that down, right? So let's go back to the beginning where we first read it. And in Sanchez is talking to Solon. is like, you Greeks remember one deluge, like a destruction of their world. But there have been many, primarily of water and fire. So he's telling you right there, which goes along with all the work that I'm doing, trying to map out catastrophes in Earth's history and saying, well, look, the younger Darius – Ahora más es menos con Cox Internet y Cox Mobile. Desde Internet con el poder de fibra en casa
1: hasta más conectividad 5G cuando estás fuera. Obtén Cox Internet por solo 35 dólares al mes cuando agregas Cox Mobile.
0: Haz clic para ahorrar.
2: It's just what ended all of these events. And actually, coincidentally, not coincidentally, but for those who don't know, I should say, is that the date that Sanchez gives Solon for the destruction of, of Atlantis is exactly the same date as the Younger Dryas catastrophes of what's called molten, um, Melwater Pulse 1A, which is when water, all of a sudden, we're finding records around the world with these massive events around the world that were absolutely catastrophic. 11,600 years ago, which is the same date that, that Sanchez gives Solon for the destruction of Atlantis. There's no way that's a coincidence. I mean, like, when you look at ice core samples from Greenland, and you look at that time period of 11,600 years ago, which is exactly the date, again, he gives, you find out that that's when the Earth went through this massive period of destruction around the world, where tectonic plates were moving and tsunamis were traveling around the world, and plates were actually subducting. How could a continent where land masses disappear? Well, we have to get into geology and climatology to understand that if you have a plate that's sitting, if you have an area of of the Earth, like, let's look at the Azor area, the Azores, right? You have three plates coming together in one area of the mid-Atlantic right there. Three plates. Three plates coming together, some are subducting, some are kind of spreading apart. very well match. And what I've been working with Randall Carlson is looking at that region of the Azores and how what you can see is what's called a subducted continent. Literally evidence a subducted continent that is right. still there if you look at satellite images where you can see that shallow area of land that literally subducted. Sunk underneath the ocean. And just want to say this last thing is that that's the description of what we get from Sanchez and these temple priests from case was swallowed up by the sea and we'll get into it more but billy go ahead and expand on that for a minute
3: yeah so it's really interesting because atlantis atlantic you can see kind of the iteration between the word how that can develop and change that name over time as a lot of words have a lot of similarities between different languages not all words but a lot of major really heavily used words seem to have uh, similar phonics to them Kind of see that that does, and what you were talking about with the subduction, it matches perfectly with the area and, and location where Atlantis, the, 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 the ring city of Atlantis, would have been.
0: Because I believe that that ring city was probably one of the biggest and most beautiful and
3: most amazing advanced capitals on Earth, but also that these people were so advanced that they wouldn't just stay in one ring city, they probably were spread out throughout the planet, and maybe there were other areas where there were these quote-unquote quasi-type capitals that existed on the planet itself. So I think that the Ring City, though, primarily was the main, the most well-respected, the most dominant location uh, for high technology and advancement in the world, but that Atlantis had spread out and became a global civilization. Um, Just like if you have a castle, real quick, if you have a castle and you have a kingdom, right, you have the people that live in the king's court but then you also have people that are still part of the kingdom that are on the outside of the king's court you understand what i'm saying
2: yeah uh, let's go back to the quote we just read to understand its location for a minute now go back to that quote for a second on page 139 if you're following it yeah. says for all that we have here lying in the mouth of which is which we speak is evidently a haven having a narrow entrance but yonder is a real ocean let's stop there for a second Sea. It's not a real ocean. It's a narrow entrance. What is is a narrow entrance? Well, well, How about the the Pillars of Hercules? How about the Straits of Gibraltar? One of the most narrow entrances in the world for that type of ocean basin connecting to a, a large sea. It's very narrow. And so the description is identical. It matches that. It's telling you right now of land. I think it was a piece of land that island chains in different in different groups that are part of like a, an empire. It's like a whole civilization was there and we know that because if we just for a minute, if we jump to um, we don't have a picture of that map in here, do we? Yes, we do. If we we do. One, 157 really quick. Mm-hmm. I think this is a good little segue just to jump over to since we're describing this and talking yeah. about it. Right. For, for those who don't know what this map is on page, and I can show it, 157 here, okay, I'll just show that for a second. So that map is arguably the one of, if not the oldest maps in the world, Far none. One of the reasons is that paper only lasts 500 to 1,000 years. Mm-hmm. So how you're gonna have a map last longer, that's a challenge right there. But nope. the reason it's so old and important is it was found in 1907 by a traveling anthropologist named Sir Stein, Stein, who is pass- passing through a, pl- a place that Though, if you are sages surviving the end of the world, you would probably want to go to one of the highest places to survive, and that makes sense why Tibet might be used to house records uh, like this. But the story of that is wild. In this small little town in Tibet, Arl Stein, traveling through, he meets this monk, and this monk tells him that he'd been cleaning and maintaining these ancient cave libraries, and there's a whole huge amount of them. They're called the working on cave number 16 this temple wall and he broke through this wall of bricks and, and stone that had, been pil- that had been built up and sealed and he found one of the most ancient important libraries in all of history you know yep. it, it, right up there with the Ashurbanipal library and library of alexandria and the ebola library of Syria and Syria groups around the world, but one thing in particular stood out to him. He found a map. He found an ancient map. And, and this is not the original map. It's one that he drew and copied over because I was digging into the story and I found out that that original map may not have survived or destroyed or some, something happened to it. But this is the copy of the original map that he found from, uh, from this ancient cave in Tibet. Now, if you look, you'll notice that Atlantis is described as a region that stretches all the way from the Mediterranean and northern Africa all the way to the Maya area of the Yucatan. And then of course you see what's called Lemuria Moon in the Pacific. But what's fascinating is, I want just to stare at this for a minute and look at what's happening in this map, because the reason that I give so much credibility to this is because of my understanding of studying the Younger Dryas and how the Earth looked during these catastrophes that were destroying Atlantis. What you see is that Look at South America. You'll see that the Amazon is a giant ocean. It's literally been flooded by a tsunami, and it's it's all underwater. It's submerged, as well as the Southwest United States and parts of the Mississippi Valley in the United States are literally small oceans. Meaning that the oceans and, and flooding had come up so significantly that it left behind these enormous areas of water. That if you had a massive tsunami come in or an event with flooding, it would leave behind these huge areas of water as it's as it's as it's. Reacclimating, and that's why this map to one of the reasons it's so fascinating is that it shows Lemuria in a state of destruction in the Pacific. It says, su- it says submerged. Same, showing you that Lemuria blue, another civilization in the Pacific, was already disappearing and being destroyed when this was made and Atlantis was still existing, but there was flooding and destruction in, throughout right. the Americas. Um, and that is just fascinating because it really uh, coincides and aligns with so much of these earth changes in history we've seen. Makes us really then look at like these sunken ruins off of Cuba, and these connections with the Maya, with these mm-hmm. structures that they built, and if that is part of the whole Atlantis, that whole region.
3: Absolutely, you made a good point there. Uh, those structures off the coast of Cuba, which we have the sonar images of, I believe we put them in the book as well. Yeah, yeah, it's page one hundred forty-eight. Yeah, because yeah. that would be great. Oh, I'm kind of far from the screen. If you could show that real quick, I'm
2: happy Matt. me to do Because I'm a little far. I'm a little far from the camera. So in the early two thousands, what Billy yeah. is describing here that kind of fits into what our narrative is is that in the early two thousands, there was a group of marine engineers that were hired by the Cuban government to explore oil and uh, and sunken treasure reserves off of Western Cuba. It's a giant, giant, massive um, plateau of, of sand that's very smooth and flat with no rocks or structures and they actually picked that area specifically because they knew it would make it very easy to detect anything on the bottom because there was no anomalies it was like sand so anything would stick out like a sore thumb so they're going through with their ships and they're doing these um side scan or sonar which basically shoots a a laser beam down to the bottom of the ocean and it it, it maps out the the floor and if it bounces off anything else in between it'll show like some kind of a structure underneath and ancient civilizations or even being that purpose, they were absolutely baffled by what these sonar readings were showing. It was like an entire underwater city, a city multiple kilometers long with width and length of an entire city. And it was an entire city that was out of place because there was no stone or, d- or kind of rocky terrain anywhere for miles and miles and miles. Again, I said it was a massive plateau. And here was these abno- abnormal structures
3: Hey, I'm done with this yada
2: yada. You don't take yada yada in life? I'll get the paperwork. Don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. At Metro, there's no contracts, no exploding bills, and not a yada yada. But this is wild, right? They they had no idea what to do. They were scared to come out about it because they were worried about people were going to see them as because they were academics, they're scientists. And one day, um, the husband was sitting and he was just looking at his computer and he had a calendar up on the wall and he looked over and he saw a Mayan pyramid, like you know, a temple of uh, Kukulkan or something, right? And he was like, oh my god, he was like of course. And then he pr- then proceeded to talk to a, a Cuban geologist, the best who then joined a second mission with them to mm. go out and go see what they could find. And they, this time they brought an underwater rover and they brought other things. And when they were out there exploring it, the rover suffered a massive mechanical error. And they were only able to, course, right? And they were only able to get a couple images back, but they found giant stone, they called it huge stone, like carved, um, massive granite blocks stacked on top of one another. Yeah. And the, even the geologist said that it was very unnatural looking and that it, if it was artificial then it would have had to have been fifty thousand years old based on wow. plate tectonics and ocean basins of that region which does kind of align with that narrative like Ed- edgar casey and with solon and all of these descriptions of an ancient civilization that was in that whole region so that's mm. where that comes in and play and it like brings up questions of is this part of atlantis that was sunken no i yes. mean part of it not you know not of it is it part of Atlantis that literally was only preserved because the plate tectonics dove it down at, a, at enough of a gentle rate that it didn't destroy everything? It is in a lot of chaos, but it is it is somewhat maintained in its structural, structural abilities. Um, but when I was studying the sonar readings, the original sonars when I was working at Gaia, right, doing the episode for Season 5 on Into Civilizations, we actually right. found something interesting that we found components of Maya work, Mayan work, and the architecture, but also specifically uh, Egyptian work, Egyptian work from like the Temple of Horus and Edfu, that type of design, which is going into a lot of the work that I'm doing down the road, but I want to point out, if Atlantis was a global civilization that was connected to Egypt and the Maya, wouldn't it make sense to find architecture that's similar from both, and that's what exactly. we see in the sonar readings? Right. Yeah, you hit it on the head. You're
3: going to see similar construction styles, similar design styles, similar blueprints. The only thing you'll see that will be different tends to be the, the motif, like the slight artistic artistic differences between the different sites, but primarily and fundamentally, it's really all the same. It leads back to one source, one blueprint, which is pretty interesting.
0: Just like you see the Great Pyramids, the Great Pyramid, I'm sorry, at Giza, and the two pyramids
3: next to it that show that alignment with Orion, and then you can see that same alignment with Orion the China pyramids, you can see the same thing in the Teotihuacan pyramids, you can also see that in Teotihuacan in Mexico, the base of the Pyramid of the Sun is virtually the same exact size as the base of the Great Pyramid at Giza, and the height of the Pyramid of the Sun in Mexico is exactly 50% the height of the Great Pyramid at Giza. Again, this is not an accident, it's not a coincidence, this is because we're talking about one master architect, or maybe a small group of master architects,
2: that then spread that knowledge out around exactly. the planet. Yeah. That's, that's a perfect segue, Billy. I want perfect. I want to read I want you to you to read um, the bottom of page one hundred thirty nine from Diodorus. Yeah, this is, so this is not Plato. Yeah. how how many people know about Diodorus? Diodorus yeah. is a Greek philosopher, a poet who was very close to Socrates. And he's another facet of this that it gets ignored. So if everyone if people think that Plato's and Solon are the only source of this knowledge of Atlantis, Sorely mistaken because what Billy's about to read is a, is a direct quote, quote from his work from Diodorus that I want Billy to read, and then I want to read a comparison quote just on the next page, on page 140, and I want you to see how similar they are and how they describe Atlantis. Billy, go ahead and start us off with Atlantis is an island.
3: Atlantis is an island of considerable size, a number of days, voyage to the west dwelling place of a race of gods, also known as giants, not men. In ancient times, this island remained undiscovered because of its distance from the other
2: inhabitants of the world. Right, and then wow. that, that was from Diodorus, so that's not Plato. Okay, Stay mm-hmm. with that for a second. Now I'm going to read a, a segment from the Timaeus and Critias, specifically the Timaeus, and I want you to see how similar their descriptions Kings of great and marvelous power, which held sway over all the island and over many other islands and parts of the continent. So these are not regular men, these are demigods. Yeah. It's said by Do- Diodorus and Plato. So what is going on here? Right? Well, look at like the ancient Sumerian bloodlines, back to the original royalty of something being lowered down there and this passing around the world. It really brings in a question, especially you look at ancient Greece. um superior mental capacity literally like demigods create telekinesis abilities with maybe moving stones even with like magic abilities that we have no comprehension of Th- that's what is described as though they're they're not like us and i think that's why when we look at ancient ancient history these lost civilizations we try to wrap their heads around how they built all these megalithic structures how they understood the harmonic balance of the law of correspondence as above, so below, and the connection, the bond, it's because they weren't like us. We are right. trying to go back to them, not going our own way. If we want to understand the truth of who we are and our divinity, we have to go backwards and, and look at those ancient teachings and what they left behind. Because if we don't, I guarantee we're going to lose ourselves in the future, and we're not going to be able to come back and find our way home. Exactly,
3: exactly. And you know, I'm glad you said that, you know, because the past is prologue, we have to really understand what happened in the past. People always, you know, not always, but a lot of people have come up to me and say, you know, why are you focusing on the ancient past so much? Why are you digging deep into what happened before? We have a lot of things going on right now. Well, exactly, because when you begin to look at these cycles, these cycles of civilization, you begin to see – the same things happening over and over again, forget the technology, forget technological advancement or lack of technological advancement. Let's just look at similarities between economics, between distractions and activities that are going on within these different time periods, between wars. And all of a sudden, you begin to see a lot of things syncing up between, between these cycles. And it's like, man, wait a minute. What is it that's keeping us in this loop? It's almost as if humanity is in this loop of rise and fall, as has been stated in many ancient texts and tablets and by many philosophers and scholars from all around the world across time. Could it be that we are rising and falling in this cycle of consciousness? And if we are, could it be that we need to discover more information about who we are and where we came from so that we can prevent making the same mistakes over and over again. And that's what it really comes down to. What do you think, Matt?
2: Absolutely. It's We think we're so superior right now in our phones and our technology, but we're like children who don't understand the wider reality of who we are and what we're a part of. We need to get off that high horse and lose that ego and realize that we are the torchbearers of the greatest humans that have ever lived on this planet. They left behind the largest structures and the connection to the cosmos, and and the connection to who we really are, that was lost and destroyed. And we're trying to put those pieces back together. But it's our job to do that, not an external savior that's going to come down. It's our job. Billy Carson's, the Matt LaCroix's, and the other ones around the world, they're the ones that are standing up to do this, because who else will? Exactly. And and I want to add something to this, to expand on this, but for those who don't know, it's kind of a, a cool little angle of That there was an American congressman, a lot of people might not know about this. In 1882, an American congressman, one of the highest levels of our political system, became absolutely fascinated by Atlantis because he was reading Diodorus and reading Plato's work, and he ended up publishing his own book called Atlantis, The Antediluvial World. And he got laughed out and, like, kicked out of government. But he made a lot of really important points. He described how. structures that seem to echo something that once existed that was long ago gone. I point out things like Menorca in Spain. Now, if if anyone hasn't heard of Menorca in Spain, Menorca has the largest T-shaped pillars, if not larger than some of the Gobekli Tepe ones, that are in some ways, some of them are 60 tons and over 30 feet tall. They're absolutely massive, these massive T-shaped pillars, and nobody knows who built them, nobody. The, The local people of Menorca have no idea who built them that that shape is an integral shape in, around ancient civilization that, ha- that ties into energy and understanding higher consciousness somehow because some of those pillars have depictions on them like pillar 43 of Gobekli Tepe that show this knowledge being passed down and handed down from somewhere and the reason I'm saying that though is there is evidence left behind of something there's evidence evidence left behind all around if you know where to look around the world and I think the next place to, to, s- to go to that Explain that is Egypt, because what's fascinating about Egypt Imaginary. to go to that to explain that is Egypt, because what's fascinating about Egypt is that at, at, well, the temple I mentioned, called the Temple of Horus at Edfu, is very. Knows, it describes all about this primordial place once that existed that was destroyed, and that the people had to flee, and then great sages had to then create other civilizations, which is exactly what Thos says in ancient Egypt, that that's what Egypt, original Egypt, came out of, which was known as Kemet, or the land of Kemet, that that was the original civilization that emerged out of the ashes and destruction of Atlantis, and that sure. was why they were so sophisticated in advance talk a little bit about, about ancient chem? Yeah. Well, we know that ancient chem
3: or ancient Kemet is the place where we get the origins of chemistry and alchemy. And that's the origins of that in ancient Kemet. That was called, that's ancient Egypt. Now it's called Egypt. We know that Egypt is a fairly new name uh, given to it by the Greeks, but the ancient name is the land of Kemet. In some of these tablets, we know that at the land of Kemet, there was evidence of an ancient flood that had happened, and the water began to reside, and temples started coming up out of the mud. And that's uh, one of the missions that Thoth went on was to go there and help rebuild civilization. It didn't say that he was going to start civilization from scratch or teach these people how to become advanced. It said that he would literally help to rebuild civilization, which means prior to this flood, there had already been an advanced civilization in that region, and a lot of knowledge and wisdom also was in that region. And when you begin to realize, like, wow, wait a minute, there was advanced civilizations even prior to the Great Flood, and now we know that sites like Obekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe, and you know, they're kind of giving us an understanding that, yeah, prior to the Flood, now Mainstream has acknowledged that it was this advanced knowledge in some way, at least this advanced construction knowledge, so there's proof now that there was an advanced civilization prior to the flood. It also proves something else, Matt, that the destruction or some of these cycles of rise and falls of civilizations occur via geological catastrophes, which is probably what happened Perfect. around that time frame. Perfect. You know, we have these collapses. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Perfect segue. Let's, let's go over that now. Let's read yeah. a couple pages just describing okay. what happened to Atlantis backwards though I, w- I want to start on 143 at the top and then I want you Billy to read 142 there but afterwards but mm-hmm. I, you have to do it the other order because that's how you can um, understand it but yeah. so this the first thing is to understand from uh, this comes from from Solon and Plato and it's just talking a little bit about its location and then Billy's going to then he's going to expand on what happened to it this is from this is from Sanchez and from these ancient records it says There was an island situated in front of the Straits of Gibraltar which you call the Pillars of Hercules. The island was larger than Libya and Asia put together. Now, when they say Asia, they don't mean all of Asia, they mean what's called Asia Minor. Asia Minor is basically Turkey, okay? That's what Asia Minor really is. But that's what they're saying is it's a large place west of the Pillars of Hercules that existed in uh, a superior state than really like the rest of the world. They were a highly advanced culture. Now, Billy, what happened to them?
3: It says, but afterwards,
2: there occurred
3: violent earthquakes and floods, and in a single day and a night of misfortune, all of your warlike men in a body sank into the earth, and the island of Atlantis, in like manner, disappeared in the depths of the sea, for which reason the sea in those parts is impassable and impenetrable, because there is a shoal of mud in the way, this was the cause of the subsidence
2: of the island. And so, wow. Right, and that's why we find that subducted continent evidence in the Azor region, which no. is, you know, that's what Randall, and I, Randall Carlson and I have really been talking about a lot, is is that really, like, part of the remnants? You know, is it? It's a question. It's not an answer. It's a question. Um, mm-hmm. But the, a lot of the characteristics are present there. The subductive continent, think about it. If you had a shoal of mud left over from all of these pieces of landmass that have subducted and, like, there's these layers of mud you would steal you would have to have it be in a place where the oceans were much more shallow and that's exactly what we find in that region is that think about it this way the azores are simply just the volcanic mountaintops of a subducted subco- subcontinent that that's all that's left that's sticking above the surface it's just that right it's like an iceberg yeah. it's like an iceberg it's only the very tips
3: which is why I believe man, we're going to find so much stuff underneath the ice. I'm pretty sure they've been scanning it, they meaning the governments of the world, and finding out what's going on in Antarctica and places like that where the ice caps are melting and where there's more access available because I'm pretty sure there's so much there. What's interesting along the lines with this kind of disaster situation is we have to understand that when they find animals – in Antarctica that are beginning to come out of this frozen ice and they take them to a laboratory and they, you know, they do an autopsy, they cut them open, they find undigested food in their stomachs. Undigested food. And based on what I just read, these types of geological disasters appear to have happened in the ancient past because we now know that There's enough circumstantial evidence when you're talking about animals flash frozen with undigested food in their stomachs. That means that that Antarctica region, that mass of land moved and shifted into that location as water created a huge, obviously, tsunami. And water came crashing over the land and all that cold wind, it flash froze the, 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 the plants, the trees, and the animals. That's why there's no... Undi- that's why there's undigested food, I'm sorry, in their stomachs. And also, to me, it means that part of another advanced culture lost to a
2: geological disaster. Yeah, let me expand on that, Billy, and talk about that a little bit. That's important. I, I love that story of talking about how they found this, and I want to I share that. In 1901, there was a man named Edward Toll, who was part of these uh, Arctic, uh, Arctic exploration. Not in Antarctica, but in the Arctic. And there they were exploring and cataloguing species they found, um, evidence of anything. They were it was just a scientific expedition. And it specifically was focused on a place called the New Siberian Islands. So Edward Toll goes up with his crew and imagine back in the day, I mean that was talk about an expedition of, of challenges. Like we can't even comprehend. Like in a ship like that. sometimes never making it out, which is actually, I'll jump ahead to the end, Edward Toll was subsequently on future trips never seen ever again, and nobody knows what happened to him. So whatever that epic story was, I'm sure it was epic. But what did Edward Toll find? In 1901, he was traveling the New Siberian Islands, and he found something very peculiar. I mean, so peculiar that it actually still remains to this day quite a mystery in terms of climatology. miles north of where any trees can grow. And if anybody knows about the Arctic, it's barren. There's nothing that grows there except lichen and very, very, very small little conifers that usually are stunted. You can't can't grow anything. It's just so inhospitable. And here it was in this way up in the Arctic circle on this New Siberian islands, is a 30-foot alder tree. Now, it wasn't alive anymore. It was frozen. circle that should not have any trees growing and somehow the climate manages to get so warm at a certain interval that it allows a 30-foot tree to grow like if anybody knows anything about biomes that is insane but more importantly the tree grows out in a place that it's not supposed to grow because it gets too warm then it gets so cold so fast that the tree freezes in the middle of summer instantly with green leaves i mm. we're told it's fascinating how that could be possible until he and many other colleagues that then expanded on work around the world from the New Siberian Islands specifically in Siberia, but also gold miners in the Yukon and Alaska that came that during the gold rush found massive, massive uh, megafauna graveyards. Massive. Randall Carlson estimates that there were 44 million or so. If I can quote him correctly, 44. across the entire Northern Hemisphere of the hardiest, most rugged animals this world has ever seen. Now, if anybody knows and remembers back in school, when you're studying the Ice Age, there was all there was all these incredible creatures that aren't around anymore. These giant beavers, these huge dire wolves, by the way, which were very real. If from That dire wolves were absolutely real. They were like three times the size of a regular wolves. Huge, right? You have these like short, short-faced bears that are yeah. like three times the size of a grizzly bear like the mammoths too they were, they were all wiped out mm-hmm. they were all but they all went extinct and they found these boneyards that were the mammoths like billy had said they were not in a state of normal death they had died instantly instantly yeah. and not only was it undigested food in their stomachs but in their throats yes that's naked. a fact they were to death, um, and what's fascinating to add that, like, to understand about that story, okay, and there was also like ash layers they found with the mammoths, so there's definitely volcanic activity as well. Mm-hmm. but at ice cores from Greenland, which is the best place you can look to have a snapshot of the Earth. That time period of the last ice age, you see what's called before the Younger Dryas. There's what's called the Older Dryas. It's around 14.5 thousand years ago. Those, if you look at that chart, you're going to see a massive spike of temperature that rivals warmer than now. Massive, 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 like literally spiked on the Earth out of an ice age. That's what's so wild is. One of the reasons why there was catastrophes around the world is you had miles of ice around the the northern ice fields, like Canada literally didn't exist, it was just an ice cap. The whole entire country of Canada was like multiple miles of an ice cap that was called the Laurentide Ice Sheet. That had these subsequent uh, melting and freezing, but the point I make is that spike in temperatures coincides exactly with what could have allowed this 30-foot alder tree to grow. Narrow, it like goes up and it hits a point and then it just plummets, which would make total sense. How that tree and those mammoths would all just freeze to death. Now, how cold does that have to be, though? Ready for this? Talking about temperatures is the coldest temperature ever recorded on Earth is negative 127, if someone could give you that. I think that's right. It's negative 127 or 128 in Antarctica. Well, they found out very interesting, they actually did studies on these mammoths and what's called putrefaction is when something rots. If something doesn't rot ever, I mean like thousands of years it's frozen and it never goes through that process. It means that it had to have been preserved at a certain temperature to do that. You know what temperature that is, Billy? What's that? The only temperature that you can do to freeze a tree like that and to freeze mammoths instantly is negative 150 degrees below below zero. break our coldest record ever that we've ever recorded by over 20 degrees meaning that that's how something like this could have happened with like the end of the world because that's the same time period all those megafauna are dying and all that's happening those ancient civilizations like atlantis and the pro-athenians were there and they're going through Mm. the end of the world they're like having to go through the end of the world
3: yeah it's powerful and people need to understand basic physics how can this happen These simulations, in terms of flash freezing things, have been done in laboratories all over the world. It's really not that hard to fathom or understand. You're just talking about something happening on on a global scale. Scientists have been experimenting with sub-zero temperatures on mass and matter for a very, very, very long time. As they had an initiative to try to get something to absolute zero, and they discovered that they couldn't create absolute zero, but they can get very, very, very close because at the fundamental, the fundamental basis of reality, atoms still want to vibrate ever so slightly, and that causes friction, which prevents uh, creating absolute zero. They were able to artificially create absolute zero in a laboratory, but not through natural means. Uh, so it's pretty interesting. But yeah, this is you know, these these cycles of destruction happen. I think that we as a civilization on this planet have to really begin to be very grateful and very thankful uh, and, and feel very blessed that we are alive right now. That we are in a window of time in between these ending these war ending, these civilizations that are ended by wars, and in between these geological disasters that also end civilizations. We're like in this window period of opportunity and time that we actually exist. And at any moment, it can be taken away from us. So that makes every individual moment so very precious and for us to stop wasting our time on things that just don't matter, that are just trivial and really begin to smell the roses and understand that, wow, we were put here for a purpose and we're here to
0: love one another and we're here to literally enjoy life and be the best that we can be.
2: Whenever you live in fear, it's not productive for the nervous system or for creativity. But the only takeaway from that is that you need to always live in the moment. And you need to realize that you can say, like, oh, i want to do this 10 years down the road or 20 years down the road. But that, that's a really bad mindset to have. We have to understand that we're part of the greatest time period that's ever existed. Where we're technolog- technologies merge with higher consciousness and advancements in our culture in a way that I don't think they've ever existed. That's my personal opinion, is that I think Atlantis had some technological aspects, but I don't think it was like us. And I think that what, we, what we've what we achieved here in this world, personally, in my opinion, has never really existed here before, and it's that's something new. It's something that is going to shake everything up in a way where we don't really know what's going to come down the road. Are we able to prevent our own destruction because we now have the technological and, and knowledge means to do it? Yes, I think so. And I don't think we're going to go down that road having to be reset and starting over again because that's not how the Kali Yuga cycles work. We already know that. Wait, we are, guys, we already know. Listen, this is how it works. Ages yep. always have to follow cyclical energy, polarity, duality. It's a, it's a constant, it's one of the cosmic laws in the universe. Kali Yuga cycles come out of ancient India, from these ancient Vedic cultures that understood that you could map these cycles. You could literally map that and be like, oh, by the way, when your ancestors like so-and-so years old, you guys are going to be and they they understood though that those cycles are so defined that even the Maya calendar is like mimicking in the same similar way where they're mapping ages and they're mapping what's going to happen in ages. Well, where are we right now? Where? Well, how about we start? Where were we? That's the best thing to start. When Atlantis existed here, you see this idea of super civilizations, highly advanced temples and megalithic stuff all over the world, everywhere. It's like a chapter that was lost in time. It means that we literally reach the highest level that we can. Now, what's that highest level? I don't think the highest level is technological. Their level of being advanced was just different. They were organically advanced. They understood how to use specific stones that had a magnetic component that was perfectly aligned with certain silica components of quartz where they could create like a harmonic resonance structure that like maps out and, and binds with not only this harmonic Earth, Moon, and the Sun, but also star constellations like Orion and Sirius, where you like you create this synergy. We have no comprehension of that. We're, if anything, we're actually pretty dumb compared to what they understood. You look at and you look at Hermes and, and all the hermetic hermeticism and the teachings they left behind. People don't think like that now. People don't talk like that. People need to, but they don't. Which means that no, we're actually far less sophisticated in our mental capacity. Balance of your advancement would have to also be perfectly balanced with the harmonic balance of the Earth, so that you don't destroy your your world and then become an empire that's unsustainable. See, growth is economic growth of a civilization is always going to be inherently limited by its its insatiable need to grow and be unsustainable, and that will be that's always its greatest destruction. Empires are always unsustainable. The only way you can have civilizations that can emerge. They develop our harmonic balance with the Earth, and that's the and that's what they had all over the world. Ancient Earth grids, temples in specific locations that were all what are called ley lines, where they They're were balancing. I believe the Earth grid, the entire Earth grid here, because they knew that our Earth goes through very violent time periods that had to do with melancholic cycles, that had to do with the sun, coronal mass ejections, outer galactic things. They understood that all those things played a critical role that you can't take a hands-off approach. You can't be like, oh, I'm just going to build this civilization and hope that nothing happens. They didn't think like that at all. They knew that their ancestors had gone through a previous destruction. That's what the original Sumerian narrative comes from, is another destruction that was not the younger Dryas. It's a whole other cycle. So they knew very well what happens here, and they safeguarded that by doing something very specific, I think, by creating a bridge system around the world to that it could never be destroyed again but what happened well it looks like the younger dryas catastrophes were so yeah. severe that give you an example go to the the, the serapium uh, in saqqara egypt and go look at um, that whole area of these giant granite boxes there are multi-tons that have no no one in them some of them are energy with these, these pyramids that are aligning, and by the way, I think the central node of that whole energy grid was Giza. I think the food pyramid of Giza was the central point of the entire grid that connected everywhere.
0: Hi there, just kind of securing my account by making sure that's signing up and people. Okay, so or the
1: one-party's guy. I mean, this is what happens in Russia, right? This is what happens in countries that we, we mock for how you know, absurd their system is. You know, This is uh, what you see in like one of the stands where they have elections, but it's 97% goes to the guy who happens to control the secret police. Um, they bring a, a federal insurrection charge of some kind against Donald Trump. Um, And they they finally see through the promise that they've made to the Democrat base starting all the way back in 2016 with Russia collusion. They have been conditioning, again, they have been conditioning their base and their people in this country to be open to the idea of a president who is a traitor and to believe that we have a president who is a traitor. Now, the people that paid attention to Russia, the people who paid attention to the whole collusion narrative, they understand it's propaganda, it was lies, it was a deep state operation. Okay, fine. They don't care about those people because they don't think they have to. Um, They think they'll have enough to just finally silence the opposition. And and what do they really ultimately want? They want a one-party state. What do they have in California? And look, I love California. I'm not saying California is the Soviet Union, but what do they have? They have a one-party state. Mm -hmm. What do they think they can achieve in this country? I think they believe they can achieve, nominally it's a democracy, sure, or a republic, um, but I think they they believe they can achieve a de facto one-party state, and the way to do it is to just completely destroy um, the existing Republican Party by indicting and maybe even imprisoning Donald Trump. And they'll feel good about themselves as they do it because they've convinced themselves that Donald Trump is a, traitor to his country even though the russia thing's a lie they don't believe it's a lie
2: i'm done with traditional foundation because of this as a young makeup artist i tried every foundation
1: powdery form it's a lie do you think they're
2: gonna indict biden
0: secrets of as then
3: knowledge. I'm here with my very good friend, Matthew LaCroix. He's also the co-author of the book that we wrote called The Epic of Humanity, and we're here to talk about, of course, Atlantis today. We're going to read from the Timius and Critias, so we're going to give you guys some, some knowledge about Atlantis. We'll touch on some sunken cities and some other incredible information that a lot of people just don't know about, all right? So it's going to be a great talk today. We're looking forward to sharing Uh, A lot of information and knowledge with you. I see a lot of people hopping in the chat already, and I'm looking forward to sharing and spending a lot of time with you guys today. And uh, Matthew, one thing that I've learned from you over the years is how a person can grow not only through their research and their knowledge, but also through their ability to convey messages For everyone who doesn't really know who you are, I know a lot of people do, but just talk a little bit about yourself, where you came from, and how you
2: got to the point where you are right now. Well, thank you, Billy. I appreciate it. I had very humble beginnings, like many of you. Billy actually kind of came to Maine and pulled me out and was like, hey, I want to give you a chance, right? You can be on a bigger stage. I believe in a lot of what you're saying. And so four years ago, uh, Billy and I met, and a lot of things have happened since then. But for those who don't know who I am, uh, my name is Matthew Lacroix. I'm an ancient history, lost civilization, esoteric expert who specifically studies and uh, the expertise is ancient Mesopotamian cuneiform tablets, as well as just general ancient civilizations around the world. And so, Billy and I, um, God, we must have we must have met like what seven years ago or eight years ago or something. Yeah, way somewhere in that day. range. Yeah, way back in the day. And back in the day, it's just been quite a journey to see the facets of the alignments of different people that are studying these things in conjunction, these parallel paths, and having them all come in alliance and say, we want to actually change this narrative, finally. Taking the evidence from around the world, these ancient texts, these stories that specifically state about these catastrophes in these locations, and let's bring back this lost timeline of ancient civilizations and lost civilizations and understand what Atlantis was, and how it ties into who we
1: are. Look at you, investing like you run on the joint. You're saying things like, I want that BS on DS
3: my desk, Mike, and how it ties into this together. Yep, yeah, absolutely. And this is what we're not talking about today. We're gonna to talk about Atlantis. And uh, you know, you, you had come up with a very good suggestion about reading from the, the Timaeus and the Critias, which a lot of people have heard about. They've heard about the, the, the story red of Plato speaking of Atlantis, but I don't think a lot of people have ever actually taken the time to dig into it and read it for themselves. Uh, and I understand a lot of people are busy. You got a wife, husband, you got kids, you got a job to go to, you have all these things going on, and so sometimes the, the distractions of the day take you away from things that you might be passionate about, so Matthew and I are going to spend some time helping you fulfill your uh, your destiny of getting some of this knowledge from this ancient information, alright, so how do you want to start it off, Matt? Well, I think we should lay down the foundation first and give people the story, like, I think there's a lot of
2: and so where does this whole story start right there's a lot of mystery and kind of fogginess Is this like Edgar Casey Cayce or, well no it actually begins with a man named Solon who was, Athenian, who was an Athenian statesman um, very brilliant man actually who decided and we don't really even know a lot of the story on why he decided to go to <laughs> Egypt actually it's it, that's a bit of a mystery but we know that he was exploring to go into It. So he traveled in 600 BC all the way to Egypt. He was the first Westerner, like the first scholar from a Western region that like could write down extensive um, stories and have and basically understand this culture. And he comes and he meets with these temple priests in the Nile in the Nile Delta of Egypt, and it's a place called the Temple of Sais. S-A-I-S. And there he's greeted by the great. Whole point of that temple was not for worship; it was actually for records. They were keeping records in a way that's similar to Al- the Library of Alexandria, but different. Because Library of Alexandria was more like scholarly things, um, like mankind's greatest achievements and like through the scholarly works. But Temple of Zeus wasn't that; it was different. It was more of something like the Dogon, if you if you know anything about the Dogon elders with the, their protection of ancient stories. It's the same concept there. Whereas they were, these these priests, these elder priests, were protecting the story of us, like the entire story of our history that had been handed down by great sages and masters around history. And the only remaining place that it really existed in its totality and written and, and shown in these beautiful murals in this ancient temple was the Temple of Sais. That was literally the center of all of this. And so Solon just happened to go there I think he probably knew that was an important temple, and so he went there, Sanchez greets him, he meets him, he says, Solon, I have so much to tell you. And he says, basically we have lifetimes of human history to explain to you. And he goes on to to describe to him that the Greeks, as from what he comes from, the classic Greeks, they're only just one iteration of a much more ancient story that goes back for them as well as Atlantis and Egypt, it's all connected. called the Proto-Athenians, or Athenians in that case, that predated the Greeks by thousands of years, which is why they came and merged and they were so sophisticated in their understandings of things. But at the same time, there was a civilization that had emerged that was part of Egypt in some ways, who, I mean, I believe through you know, Thoth or the sons of Shem or something like that, or in the Enoch connection, went, went off through um, Egypt and cre- eventually created a civilization out somewhere right off of in the Atlantic, and that's what this this Sanchez priest tells Solon, is he describes this entire story about, about an ancient civilization that existed that was basically this almost like superior civilization of our history that we have very little records or understanding of, but Solon had a journal, so he was sitting there, Of of the central city and what Atlantis was like, what their governing was like, what their influences were like, everything. It was like so detailed in that. And so Solon comes back, comes back to Greece. And the first person that he tells, or at least the primary person he tells, is his name is Socrates. And Socrates then tells Diodorus Plato. That's how it goes. It's, a, it's, it's information that comes from sources that gets handed down philosophers, are history, and Plato in the Timaeus and Critias then writes about ancient Atlantis versus the Athenians as civilizations, and he says this is not a a fictional story, this is a real story that's based on uh, real events, but it's being used as an allegory to describe how civilizations can emerge in the direction they can take. But that allegorical aspect made people think that it's not true Socrates was murdered by their own government after. He was poisoned, okay, because he started speaking out about different aspects of, of, of government and different things that weren't, um, you know, weren't morally just, and they killed him. They, they murdered mm-hmm. Socrates, and it was one of the most horrific acts in um, in that time period because Plato describes how it was like losing a father, and he was devastated. It, like, destroyed him. Way, he would be killed too. So, smart enough as it is, he wrote the whole thing as an allegory and then hinted in it that it was true. And that's where this all begins. And that's where exactly. this came from.
3: Facts, man. Facts. What a great, great description to get us off to a phenomenal start on Atlantis. And a lot of people, I'm glad you really broke it down because a lot of people have heard small fragments of what Atlantis or Plato's version of what Atlantis may have been or what the history of it might have been. And I mean really tiny, I'm talking about sentences over the years. Even I hadn't heard a lot about it until about ten years ago, just as I dug in to begin to do more research, as you have. And so I began to realize this was a much bigger story, and the story is really a mind-boggling story, because we're talking about a super-advanced civilization that existed in the ancient past, we're talking about the fact that the information about this, the knowledge of this location, have been passed on, and uh, you know it's uh, it's something. In my personal opinion, there's enough circumstantial evidence to prove that it was real and it really did exist. Yeah, so, exactly. without, yeah. Without further ado, let's talk a little bit about Atlantis. Um,
2: sure. one, one page one thirty eight. If anybody wants to follow along yeah. with us, like we're you know we're doing one of those readings. Um, but page th- one thirty eight contains the first quote. It's the first. What atlantis is and what happened in our ancient past but more of of aligning with where does it fall in our timeline how do we understand how our epic has played out and you get clues here now this is coming directly from sanchez so imagine right if we're doing the storytelling session we're sitting around a fire this is what you would see sanchez would be you know sitting down with with um i'm sorry with solon and they were they were discussing and describing what Sanchez tells Solon. He says, there have been and there will be again many destructions of mankind arising out of many causes. The greatest have been brought about by fire and water.
3: You remember a single deluge only, but there were many previous ones. For all that we have, the line within the mouth of which we speak is evidently a haven having narrow entrance, but yonder is a real ocean, and the land surrounding it, my most rightly, is my most rightly be called, in the fullest
2: and truest sense, a continent. Now That's interesting. This island, now on this island of Atlantis, there existed a confederation ke- of great, of kings of great marvelous power which held sway over all the island and many of the other islands and parts of the continent. Let's stop there for a minute before we read any more passages. Let's let's break that down, right? So let's go back to the beginning where we first read it. And Sanchez is talking to Solon. He's like, you Greeks remember one deluge, like a destruction of their world. But there have been many, primarily of water and fire. So he's telling you right there, which goes along with all the work that I'm doing, history and saying, "Well, look, the younger driest Cox Internet and Cox Mobile, desde internet con el poder de fibra en casa
1: hasta más 5G cuando estás fuera. Obtén Cox Internet por solo $35 al mes cuando agregas Cox Mobile. Haz click para ahorrar.
2: But for those who don't know, I should say, is that the date that Sanchez gives Solon for the destruction of of Atlantis is exactly the same date as the Younger Dryas catastrophes of what's called uh, Melwater Pulse 1A, which is when water, all of a sudden we're finding records around the world where these massive events around the world that were absolutely catastrophic. And that date is exactly 11,600 years ago, which is the same date. That Sanchez gives Solon for the destruction of Atlantis. There's no way that the coincidence. I mean, like, when you look at ice core samples from Greenland, and you look at that time period of 11,600 years ago, which is exactly the date, again, he gives, you find out that that's when the Earth went through this massive period of destruction around the world, where tectonic plates were moving and tsunamis were traveling around the world, and plates were actually subducting underneath each other. So, how could a to understand that if you have a plate that's sitting, if you have an area of of the earth, like let's look at the Azor area, the Azores, right? You have three plates coming together in one area of the mid-Atlantic right there. Three plates. Three plates coming together. Some are subducting. Some are kind of spreading apart. You have all kinds of stuff going on there, but it's one of the most active areas on earth, and it just so happens that's where the descriptions of Atlantis What you can see is what's called a subducted continent. Literally evidence a subducted continent that is right. still there if you look at satellite images where you can see that shallow area of land that literally subducted, sunk underneath the ocean. And just want to say this last thing is that that's the description of what we get from Sanchez and these temple priests from Sais. Right. is that they literally say that Atlantis was swallowed up by the sea. And we'll get into it more. But Billy, go ahead and expand on that for a minute.
3: Yeah, so it's really interesting because Atlantis, Atlantic, you can see it kind of the iteration between the word, how that can develop and change that name over time, as a lot of words have a lot of similarities between different languages. Not all words, but a lot of major, really heavily used words seem to have uh, similar phonics to them, and you can kind of see that that does, and what you were talking about with the subduction. the it matches perfectly with the area and and location where Atlantis, the the ring city of Atlantis, would have been.
0: Because I believe that that ring city was probably one of the biggest and most beautiful and most
3: amazing advanced capitals on Earth. But also that these people were so advanced that they wouldn't just stay in one ring city. They probably were spread out throughout the planet. And maybe there were other areas where there were these quote-unquote quasi-type capitals that existed on the planet itself. So, I think that the Ring City, though, primarily was the main, the most well-respected, the most dominant location uh, for high technology and advancement in the world, but that Atlantis had spread out and became a global civilization. Um, Just like if you have a castle, real quick, if you have a castle and you have a kingdom, right, and you have the people that live in the king's court, but then you also have people that are still part of the kingdom that are on the outside of the king's court,
2: you understand what I'm saying? let's go back to the quote we just read to understand its location for a minute now go back to that quote for a second on page 139 if you're following it yeah. says for all that we have here lying in the mouth of which is which we speak is evidently a haven having a narrow entrance but yonder is a real ocean let's stop there for a second and think about that if you have the mediterranean sea it's not a real ocean it's a narrow entrance what is what is well, how about the, per- the Pillars of Hercules? How about the Straits of Gibraltar? One of the most narrow entrances in the world for that type of ocean basin connecting to a, a large sea. It's very narrow. And so the description is identical. It matches that. It's telling you right now that there was a narrow entrance, but yonder is a real ocean. And the land surrounding it most rightly be called, in the fullest and truest sense, a continent. So I don't think it was a single piece of land. I think it was a piece of land that island chains in different in different groups that are part of like a an empire, it's like a whole civilization was there, and we know that because if we just for a minute, if we jump to um, we don't have a picture of that map in here, do we? Yes, we do. If we we jump do. To One fifty-seven, really quick. Mm-hmm. I think this is a good little segue just to jump over to since we're describing this and talking yeah. about it. Right. For for those who don't know what this map is on page, and I can show it on page one fifty-seven here show that for a second. So that map is arguably the one of, if not the oldest maps in the world, Far not. One of the reasons is that paper only lasts 500 to 1,000 years. Mm -hmm. So how you're going to have a map last longer, that's a challenge right there. But the reason it's so old and important is it was found in 1907 by a traveling anthropologist named Sir Arnold Stein, If sages surviving the end of the world you would probably want to go to one of the highest places to survive and that makes sense of why tibet might be used to house records uh, like this but the story of that is wild in this small little town in tibet Stein, traveling through he meets this monk and this monk tells him that he'd been cleaning and maintaining these ancient cave libraries and there's a whole huge working on cave number 16 this temple wall and he broke through this wall of bricks and, and stone that had, been, that had been built up and sealed and he found one of the most ancient important libraries in all of history you know yep. and, and right up there with the Ashurbanipal library and library of alexandria and the ebola library and assyria and some the world, but one thing particular stood out to him. He found a map. He found an ancient map. And, and this is not the original map. It's one that he drew and copied over. Because I was digging into the story and I found out that that original map may not have survived or destroyed or some, something happened to it. But this is the copy of the original map that he found from, uh, from this ancient cave in Tibet. Now if you look, you'll notice that Atlantis is described as a region that stretches all the way from northern Africa all the way to the Maya area of the Yucatan, and then, of course, you see what's called Lemuria boom in the Pacific. But what's fascinating is I want just to stare at this for a minute and look at what's happening in this map because the reason that I give so much credibility to this is because of my understanding of studying the Younger Dryas and how the Earth looked during these catastrophes that were destroying Atlantis. What you see is that if you look at South America, you'll see that the Amazon is a giant ocean. It's literally been flooded by a tsunami and it's, it's all underwater. It's submerged. As well as the southwest United States and parts of the Mississippi Valley in the United States are literally the small oceans. Meaning that the oceans and, and flooding had come up so significantly that it left behind these enormous areas of water. But if you had a massive tsunami come in or an event with flooding, it would leave behind these huge areas of water as it's as it's, as it's passing back through and reacclimating, And that's why this map one of the reasons it's so fascinating is that it shows Lemuria in a state of destruction in the Pacific. It says says submerged. Showing you that Lemuria blue, another civilization in the Pacific, was already disappearing and being destroyed when this was made, and Atlantis was still existing, but there was flooding and destruction throughout the Americas. Um, And that is just fascinating because it really uh, coincides and aligns with so much of these Earth changes in history we've seen that makes us really then look at, like, these sunken ruins off of Cuba and these connections with the Maya, with these mm-hmm. structures that they built, and if that is part of the whole Atlantis, that whole region.
3: Absolutely. You made a good point there. Uh, those structures off the coast of Cuba, which we have the sonar images of, I believe we put them in the book as well. Yeah, Yeah, it's page 148. Yeah, because that would be great. Oh, I'm kind of far from the screen. If you could show that real quick, Matt,
2: because I'm, I'm a little far from the camera. So in the early 2000s, what Billy is yeah. describing here that kind of fits into what our narrative is, is that in the early 2000s, there was a group of marine engineers that were hired by the Cuban government to explore oil and, uh, and sunken treasure reserves off of western Cuba. It's a giant, giant massive um, plateau of, of sand that's very smooth and flat with no rocks or structures. And they actually picked that area specifically because they knew it would make it very easy to detect anything on the bottom because there was no anomalies, it was like sand. So anything would stick out like a sore thumb. So they're going through with their ships and they're doing these um, side scan over sonar, which basically shoots a, a laser beam down to the bottom of the ocean. And when it, it, it maps out the, the floor. And it boun- if it bounces off anything else in between, Showed, like some kind of a structure underneath. having been not interested in ancient civilizations or even being that purpose they were absolutely baffled by what these sonar readings were showing it was like an entire underwater city a city multiple kilometers long with width and length of an entire city and it was an entire city that was out of place because there was no stone or, or kind of rocky terrain anywhere for miles and miles Hey, I'm done with this yada yada. You don't take yada yada in life? I'll get the paperwork. Don't take yada yada from your wireless provider.
0: At Metro, there's no
2: contracts, no exploding bills, and now they yada yada. That, that had what looked like uh, quite pyramid-like designs, temple designs, um, that were mapping out in a very, like, this is wild, right? They, they had no idea what to do. They were scared to come out about it because they were worried about people were going to see them as because they're academics. They're scientists. And one day um, the husband was sitting and he was just looking at his computer and he had a calendar up on the wall. and He looked over and he saw a Mayan pyramid. Like, you know, a temple of uh, Koko or something, right? And he was like, oh my god. He was like, of course. And then he pre- then proceeded to talk to a, a Cuban geologist, the best geologist who then joined a second mission with them to mm. go out and go see what they could find. And they, this time they brought an underwater rover and they brought other things. And when they were out there exploring it, the rover suffered a massive mechanical error. And they were only able to, course, right? And they were only able to get a couple images back, but they found giant stone, they called it huge stone, like carved, um, massive granite blocks stacked on top of one another. Yep. And the, even the geologist said that it was very unnatural looking, and that if, if it was artificial, then it would have had to have been fifty thousand years old, based wow. on the plate tectonics and ocean basins of that region, which does kind of align with that narrative, like Ed- Edgar Casey and with Solon, and all of these descriptions of an ancient civilization that was in that whole region. So that's mm. where that comes in and play, and it like brings up questions of is this part of Atlantis that was sunken? No, I mean yes. Part of it, not you know, not the, obviously the heart of it, but is, is it part of Atlantis that literally was only preserved because the plate tectonics dove it down at, a, at enough of a gentle rate that it didn't destroy everything? It is in a lot of chaos, but it's, it's it is somewhat maintained in its structural structural abilities. Um, but when I was studying the sonar readings, the original sonars when I was working at Gaia, right, doing the episode for season five of Into Civilizations, we actually right. found something interesting that found components of Maya work, Mayan work, and the architecture, but also specifically uh, Egyptian work. Egyptian work from, like, the Temple of Horus at Edfu, that type of design, which is going into a lot of the work that I'm doing down the road. But I want to point out, Atlantis was a global civilization that was connected to Egypt and the Maya, wouldn't it make sense to find architecture that's similar from both? And that's what exactly. we to find in the sonar readings. Right. Yeah, you hit it on the head. You're going
3: to see similar Construction styles, similar design styles, similar blueprints. The only thing you'll see that will be different tends to be the, the motif, like the slight artistic artistic differences between the different sites, but primarily and fundamentally it's really all the same. It leads back to one source, one blueprint, which is pretty interesting. Just like you see the Great Pyramids the Great Pyramid, I'm sorry, at Giza, and the two pyramids next to it that show that alignment with Orion. And then you can see that same alignment with Orion in the China pyramids. You can see the same thing in the Teotihuacan pyramids. You can also see that in Teotihuacan in Mexico, the base of the Pyramid of the Sun is virtually the same exact size as the base of the Great Pyramid at Giza. And the height of the Pyramid of the Sun in Mexico is exactly 50% the height of the Great Pyramid at Giza again this is not a, an accident it's not a coincidence this is because we're talking about one master architect or maybe a small group of master architects that then spread
0: that knowledge out
2: around exactly. the planet that's yeah that's a perfect segue billy i want perfect i want to read i want you to you to read um the bottom of page 139 from diet Doors. yeah this so this is not So if, everyone, if people think that Plato's and Solon are the only source of this knowledge of Atlantis, you're sorely mistaken, because what Billy is about to read is a, is a direct qu- quote from his work from mm-hmm. Diodorus that I want Billy to read, and then I want to read a comparison quote just on the next page, on page 140, and I want you to see how similar they are and how they describe Atlantis. Billy, go ahead and start us off with Atlantis is an Island. Atlantis is
3: an Island of considerable size. Number of Days, Voyage to the West, the dwelling place of a race of gods, also known as giants, not men. In ancient times, this island remained undiscovered because of its distance from the other
2: inhabitants of the world. Right, and then wow. that, that was from Diodorus, so that's not Plato. Okay, stay mm-hmm. with that for a second. Now I'm going to read a, a segment from the Timaeus and Critias, specifically the Timaeus, that I want you to. See Descriptions of Atlantis are ready for this. A confederation of kings of great and marvelous power, which held sway over all the island and over many other islands and parts of the continent. So these are not regular men. These are demigods. Yeah. It's, it's said by Do- Diodorus and Plato. So what is going on here, right? Well, look at like the ancient Sumerian bloodlines, back to the original royalty of something being lowered down there, and this passing around the world really brings in a question, especially looking at ancient Greece as well, is that is there some kind of gifts that were we were putting to humanity that we were able to achieve things that we have no comprehension of now? Long lives, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years living, um, superior mental capacity, literally like demigods, cre- telekinesis, abilities with maybe moving stones, even with like magic abilities that we have no comprehension of what is described as though they're they're not like us, and I think that's why when we look at ancient ancient history, these lost civilizations, we try to wrap their heads around how they built all these megalithic structures and how they understood the harmonic balance of the law of correspondence as above so below and the connection, the bond. It's because they weren't like us. We are right. trying to go back to them, not going our own way. If we want to understand the truth of who we are and our divinity, we have to go backwards and, and look at those ancient teachings what they left behind, because if we don't, I guarantee we're going to lose ourselves in the future, and we're not going to be able to come back and find our way home. Exactly,
3: exactly. And, you know, I'm glad you said that, you know, because the past is prologue. We have to really understand what happened in the past. People always, you know, not always, but a lot of people have come up to me and say, you know, why are you focusing on the ancient past so much? Why are you digging deep into what happened before? We have a lot of things going on right now. Well, exactly, because when you begin to look at these cycles, these cycles of civilization, you begin to see the same things happening over and over again. Forget the technology. Forget technological advancement or lack of technological advancement. Let's just look at similarities between economics, between distractions and activities that are going on within these different time periods, between wars. And all of a sudden, you begin to see a lot of things syncing up. between these cycles and it's like man wait a minute what is it that's keeping us in this loop it's almost as if humanity is in this loop of rise and fall as has been stated in many ancient texts and tablets and by many philosophers and scholars from all around the world across time could it be that we are rising and falling in this cycle of consciousness and if we are could it be that we need to discover more information about who we are and where we came from so that we can prevent making the same mistakes over and over again? And that's what it really comes down to. What do you think, Matt?
2: Absolutely. It's We think we're so superior right now with our phones and our technology, but we're like children who don't understand the wider reality of who we are and what we're a part of. We need to get off that high horse and lose that ego and realize that. left behind the largest structures and the connection to the cosmos and and the connection to who we really are that was lost and destroyed. And we're trying to put those pieces back together. But it's our job to do that, not an external savior that's going to come down. It's our job. Billy Carson's, the Matt LaCroix's, and the other ones around the world, they're the ones that are standing up to do this because who else will? Exactly. And and I want to add something to this, to expand on this, but for those who don't know, it's kind of a, a cool little angle of There was an American congressman. A lot of people might not know about this. In 1882, an American congressman, one of the highest levels of our political system, became absolutely fascinated by Atlantis because he was reading Diodorus and reading Plato's work. left-behind structures that seem to echo something that once existed that was long ago gone. I point out things like Menorca in Spain. Now, if, if, if anyone hasn't heard of Menorca in Spain, Menorca has the largest T-shaped pillars, if not larger than some of the Göbekli Tepe ones, that are in some ways, some of them are 60 tons and over 30 feet tall. They're absolutely massive. These massive T-shaped pillars. And nobody knows who built them. Nobody. The, the local people of Menorca have no idea who built them know that that shape is an integral shape in, around ancient civilization that, ha- that ties into energy and understanding higher consciousness somehow because some of those pillars have depictions on them like pillar 43 of Gobekli Tepe that show this knowledge being passed out and handed down from somewhere and the reason I'm saying that though is there is evidence left behind of something there's evidence evidence left behind all around if you know where to look around the world and I think the next place to, just to go to that that. Billy knows it describes all about this primordial place once that existed that was destroyed, and that the people had to flee, and then great sages had to then create other civilizations, which yes. is exactly what Those says in ancient Egypt that that's what Egypt, original Egypt, came out of, which was known as Kemet, or the land of Kem. That, that was the original civilization that emerged out of the ashes and destruction of Atlantis. And that sure. was why. About, about ancient chem yeah well we know that ancient chem
3: or ancient chemet is the place where we get the origins of chemistry and alchemy and that's the origins of that in ancient chemet that's that was called that's ancient Egypt now it's called Egypt we know that Egypt is a fairly new name uh, given to it by the Greeks but the ancient name is the land of chemet. In some of these tablets, we know that in the land of Kemet, there was evidence of an ancient flood that had happened, and the water began to reside, and temples started coming up out of the mud. And that's uh, one of the missions that Thoth went on was to go there and help rebuild civilization. It didn't say that he was going to start civilization from scratch or teach these people how to become advanced. It said that he would literally help to rebuild civilization, which means prior to this flood, there had already been an advanced civilization in that region, and a lot of knowledge and wisdom also was in that region. And when you begin to realize, like, wow, wait a minute, there was advanced civilizations even prior to the Great Flood, and now we know that sites like Obekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe, and you know, they're kind of giving us an understanding that, yeah, prior to the Flood, now Mainstream has acknowledged that it was this advanced knowledge in some way, at least this advanced construction knowledge, So there's proof now that there was an advanced civilization prior to the flood. It also proves something else, Matt, that the destruction or some of these cycles of rise and falls of civilizations occur via geological catastrophes, which is probably what happened around that time frame. We have these collapses. Yeah. Perfect segue.
2: Uh, Let's let's go over that now. Let's read a couple passages describing what happened to Atlantis. We're gonna go backwards though. I, w- I want to start on one forty three at the top, and then I want you, Billy, to read one forty two there. But afterwards, but you mm-hmm. have to do it in the other order because they that's how you can um, understand it. But, yeah. so this, The first thing is to understand from uh, this comes from from Solon and Plato, and it's just talking a little bit about its location, and then Billy's gonna t- then he's gonna expand on what happened to it. This is from this is from Sanchez and from these ancient records. It says Solon goes on to say, and Plato then says in the. There was an island situated in front of the Straits of Gibraltar, which you call the Pillars of Hercules. The island was larger than Libya and Asia put together. Now, when they say Asia, they don't mean all of Asia. They mean what's called Asia Minor. Asia Minor is basically Turkey. Okay, That's what basically Asia Minor really is. But that's what they're saying is that it's a large place west of the Pillars of Hercules that existed in uh, a superior state than really like the rest of the world. They were a highly advanced culture. Now, Billy, what happened to them?
3: says, but afterwards,
2: there occurred
3: violent earthquakes and floods, and in a single day and a night of misfortune, all of your warlike men in a body sank into the earth, and the island of Atlantis, in like manner, disappeared in the depths of the sea, for which reason the sea in those parts is impassable and impenetrable, because there is a shoal of mud in the way, this was the cause of the subsidence of
2: the island. And so, wow. Right, and that's why we find that subductive continent evidence in the Azor region, which no. is, you know, that's what Randall, and I, Randall Carlson and I have really been talking about a lot, is is that really, like, part of the remnants? You know, is it? It's a question. It's not an answer. It's a question. Um, mm-hmm. But the, a lot of the characteristics are present there. The subductive continent, think about it. If you had a shoal of mud left over from all of these pieces of landmass that have subducted and, like, there's these layers of mud you would steal you would have to have it be in a place where the oceans were much more shallow and that's exactly what we find in that region is that think about it this way the azores are simply just the volcanic mountain tops of a subducted subco- subcontinent that that's all that's left that's sticking above the surface it's just that right. it's like an iceberg yeah. it's like an iceberg it's only the very tips
3: which is why I believe, man, we're going to find so much stuff underneath the ice. I'm pretty sure they've been scanning it, they meaning the governments of the world, and finding out what's going on in Antarctica and places like that where the ice caps are melting and where there's more access available because I'm pretty sure there's so much there. What's interesting along the lines with this kind of disaster situation is we have to understand that when they find animals – in antarctica that are beginning to come out of this frozen ice and they take them to a laboratory and they you know they do an autopsy they cut them open they find undigested
0: food in their stomachs undigested food
3: and based on what i just read these types of geological disasters appear to have happened in the ancient past because we now know that there's enough circumstantial evidence when you're talking about animals flash frozen with undigested food in their stomachs. That means that that Antarctica region, that mass of land, moved and shifted into that location as water it created a huge, obviously tsunami, and water came crashing over the land, and all that cold wind it flash froze the the the, the plants, the trees, and the animals. That's why there's no. That's why there's undigested food, I'm sorry, in their stomachs, and also to me it means that part of another advanced culture lost to a geological disaster.
2: Yeah, let me expand on that Billy, and talk about that a little bit. That's important. I I love that story of... not in Antarctica, but in the Arctic. And there they were exploring and cataloging species. They found um, evidence of anything. They were it was just a scientific expedition. And it specifically was focused on a place called the New Siberian Islands. So Edward Toll goes up with his crew, and imagine back in the day, I mean, that was, talk about an expedition of, of challenges. Like, we can't even comprehend like, in a ship like that, sometimes never making it out, which is actually, I'll jump ahead to the end, Edward Toll was subsequently on future trips and never seen ever again, and nobody knows what happened to him. So whatever that epic story was, I'm sure Sure. it was epic, but what did Edward Toll find? In 1901, he was traveling the New Siberian Islands, and he found something very peculiar, I mean, so peculiar that it actually still remains to this day quite a mystery in terms of climatology, Where any trees can grow, and if anybody knows about the Arctic, it's barren. There's nothing that grows there except lichen and very, very, very small little conifers that usually are stunted. You can't, you can't grow anything. It's just so hus- inhospitable. And here it was, in this bizar- way up in the Arctic Circle, on this new Siberian islands, is a thirty-foot alder tree. Now it wasn't alive anymore. It was frozen, and I mean frozen. It was flash frozen. for a second. Here you have a place hundreds of miles in the north on the Arctic Circle that should not have any trees growing. And somehow the climate manages to get so warm at a certain interval that it allows a 30-foot tree to grow. Like, if anybody knows anything about biomes, that is insane. But more importantly, the tree grows at a, in a place that it's not supposed to grow because it gets too warm. Then it gets so cold so fast that the tree freezes in the middle of summer instantly with wow. green leaves. Edward Tull was fascinated by that. He couldn't understand how that could be possible until he and many other colleagues that then expanded on work around the world from the New Siberian Islands, specifically in Siberia, but also gold miners in the Yukon and Alaska that came that during the gold rush found massive, massive uh, megafauna graveyards. Massive. Randall Carlson estimates that there were 44 million or so, if I can quote him correctly, 44 million. Death. Megafauna means large animals. Yes. It's an extinction across the entire northern hemisphere of the hardiest, most rugged animals this world has ever seen. Now, if anybody knows and remembers back in school when you're studying the Ice Age, there was all there was all these incredible creatures that aren't around anymore. These giant beavers, these huge dire wolves. By the way, which were very Short faced bears that yeah. were like three times the size of a grizzly bear. It's, it's insane. All of those creatures, like the mammoths, too, they were, they were all wiped out. Mm-hmm. They were all, they all went extinct and they found these bone yards that were. The mammoths, like Billy had said, they were not in a state of normal death. They had died instantly. Instantly. Yeah. And not only was it undigested food in their stomachs, but in their throats. That's, that's a fact they were in the middle of eating and grazing and all of a sudden they just froze to death um and what's fascinating to add that like, to understand about that layers they found with the mammoths, so there's definitely volcanic activity as well, but what's fascinating about that is if you look at ice cores from Greenland, which is the best place you can look to have a snapshot of the Earth, that time period of the last ice age, you see what's called, before the Younger Dryas, there's what's called the Older Dryas. It's around 14,500 years ago. Those, If you look at that chart, you're going to see a massive spike of temperature that rivals warmer than now like literally spiked on the earth out of an ice age. That's what's so wild is it's one of the reasons why there was catastrophes around the world. Is you had miles of ice around the uh, northern ice fields. Like Canada literally was not, didn't exist. It was just an ice cap. The whole entire country of Canada was like uh, multiple miles of an ice cap that was called the Laurentide Ice Sheet. That had these subsequent uh, melting and freezing. But the point I make is that spike in temperatures coincides exactly with what could have allowed this 30 foot alder tree to grow out of nowhere, but the spike in temperatures is so narrow, it like goes up and it hits a point and then it just plummets, which would make total sense how that tree and those mammoths would all just freeze to death. Now how cold does that have to be though? Ready for this? Talking about temperatures, is the coldest temperature ever recorded on earth is negative 127, if someone could give me that. I think that's right negative 127 or 128 in Antarctica. Well, they found out, it was very interesting, they actually did studies on these mammoths and what's called putrefaction is when something rots. If something doesn't rot ever, I mean like thousands of years it's frozen and it never goes through that process, it means that it had to have been preserved at a certain temperature to do that. You know what temperature that is, Billy? What's that? The only temperature that you can do to freeze a tree like that and to freeze mammoths is negative one hundred and fifty degrees below below zero. Wow, negative one hundred and fifty. That would break really our coldest cold. record ever that we've ever recorded by over twenty degrees. Meaning that that's how something like this could have happened with like the end of the world, because that's the wow. same time period. All those megafauna are dying, and all that's happening. Those ancient civilizations like Atlantis and the Pro Athenians were there, and they're going through <laughs> the end of the world. They're like having yep. to go through the end of the
3: And people need to understand basic physics. How can this happen? These these simulations in terms of flash freezing things have been done in laboratories all over the world. It's really not that hard to fathom or understand. You're just talking about something happening on on a global scale. Scientists have been experimenting with sub-zero temperatures on mass and matter for a very, very, very long time. As they had an initiative to try to get something to absolute zero, and they discovered that they couldn't create absolute zero, but they can get very, very, very close because at the fundamental, the fundamental basis of reality, atoms still want to vibrate ever so slightly, and that causes friction, which prevents uh, creating absolute zero. They were able to artificially create absolute zero in a laboratory, but not through natural means. Uh, so it's pretty interesting, but yeah,
0: this is cycles of destruction happen. I think that we as a
3: civilization on this planet have to really begin to be very grateful and very thankful uh, and and feel very blessed that we are alive right now. That we are in a window of time in between these war-ending, these these civilizations that are ended by wars and in between these geological disasters that also end civilizations. We're like in this window period of opportunity and time that we actually exist, and at any moment, it can be taken away from us, so that makes every individual moment so very precious, and for us to stop wasting our time on things that just don't matter, that are just trivial, and really begin to smell the roses and understand that, wow, we were put here for a purpose, and we're here to love one another, and we're here to literally enjoy life and be the best that we can be.
2: Whenever you live in fear, it's not productive for the nervous system or for creativity. But the only takeaway from that is that you need to always live in the moment. And you need to realize that you can say, like, oh, I want to do this 10 years down the road or 20 years down the road. But that that's a really bad mindset to have. We have to understand that we're part of the greatest time period that's ever existed. We're—we're we're technolog- Technologies merge with higher consciousness and advancements in our culture in a way that I don't think they've ever existed. Now, that's my personal opinion, is that I think Atlantis had some technological aspects, but I don't think it was like us. And I think that what, we, what we've what we achieved here in this world, personally, in my opinion, has never really existed here before, and it's, it's something new. It's something that is going to shake everything up in a way where we don't really know what's going to come down the road. Are we able to prevent our own destruction because we now have the technological and, and knowledge means to do it? Yes, I think so. And I don't think we're going to go down that road to be reset and starting over again because that's not how the Kali Yuga cycles work. We already know that. We, we, are, guys, we already know. Listen, this is how it works. Ages yep. always have to follow cyclical energy, polarity, duality. It's a, it's a constant, it's one of the cosmic laws in the universe. Kali Yuga cycles come out of ancient India, from these ancient Vedic cultures that understood that you could map these cycles. You could literally map that and be like, oh, by the way, when your ancestors are like so-and-so years old, you guys they, they understood, though, that those cycles are so defined that even the Maya calendar is like mimicking in the same similar way where they're mapping ages and they're mapping what's going to happen in ages. Well, where are we right now? Where? Well, how about we start where were we? That's the best thing to start. When Atlantis existed here, you see this idea of super civilizations, highly advanced temples and megalithic stuff all over the world, everywhere. It's like a chapter that was lost in means that we literally reach the highest level that we can now what's that highest level i don't think the highest level is technological their level of being advanced was just different they were organically advanced they understood how to use specific stones that had a magnetic component that was perfectly aligned with certain silica components of quartz where they could create like a harmonic resonance structure that like maps out and and binds with not only this harmonic aspect of heaven Earth, moon, and the sun, but also star constellations like Orion and Sirius, where you like you create this synergy. We have no comprehension of that. We're, if anything, we're actually pretty dumb compared to what they understood. You look at and you look at Hermes and, and all the hermetic hermeticism and the teachings they left behind. People don't think like that now. People don't talk like that. People need to, but they don't. Which means that no, we're actually far less sophisticated in our mental capacity higher level understanding of things, but they weren't. They had mapped it out, and they had mastered reality. Mastered it. What is mastering reality? Well, it would mean you'd have to have a perfect cohesive balance of your advancement would have to also be perfectly balanced with the harmonic balance of the earth, so that you didn't destroy your your world, and then become an empire that's unsustainable. See, growth is, economic growth of a civilization is always going to be inherently limited by will need to grow and be unsustainable, and that will be. It's always as great as destruction. Empires are always unsustainable. The only way you can have civilizations that can emerge and be long lasting is if they develop a harmonic balance with the earth, and that's the and that's what they had all over the world. Ancient earth grids, temples in specific locations. There were on what are called ley lines, where they are balancing. I believe the earth grid, the entire earth grid here, because they knew that our earth goes through very that had to do with Melanchoevic cycles, that had to do with the sun, coronal mass ejections, outer galactic things. They understood that all those things played such a critical role that you can't take a hands-off approach. You can't be like, oh, I'm just going to build this civilization and hope that nothing happens. They didn't think like that at all. They knew that their ancestors had gone through a previous destruction. That's what the original Sumerian narrative comes from, is another destruction that was not the younger dryer whole other cycle. So they knew very well what happens here. And they safeguarded that by doing something very specific, I think, by creating a bridge system around the world to balance it so that it could never be destroyed again. But what happened? Well, it looks like the Younger Dryas catastrophes were so yeah. severe that, give you an example, go to the of the, the uh, in Saqqara, Egypt, and go look at... Um, by the way, I think the central note of that whole energy grid was Giza. I think the three mm-hmm. pyramid of Giza was the central point of the entire